Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and as always, it's an honor and pleasure to have you here with me today. Okay, so today I am joined by Greg Thomas. Greg is a writer, journalist, uh, an entrepreneur. His work um, and, and really intellectual life focuses on race, jazz, and what we might call cultural evolution. And he, he looks at these themes through the lens, I think, of what's called integral theory, which is a kind of a worldview philosophical map generated by Ken Wilber going back about three decades now. And while it's a fairly complicated worldview, a very nuanced and sophisticated worldview, in essence, one way of distilling it down would be, might be to say that integral theory seeks to uh, embrace and utilize the very best of all forms of knowing or all epistemological uh, avenues and to put aside whatever is not so good about those worldviews. So it's sort of preserve and use what's useful and put aside and discard what's unuseful, which is really in some ways the essence of the Buddha Dharma, to cultivate skillful means. I should also add that Greg is a senior fellow at the Institute for Cultural Evolution, which is an integral think tank in Boulder, Colorado. Greg also is the CEO of the Jazz Leadership Project, a consultancy that brings jazz capacities to individuals, organizations, and, and helps develop uh, the, an expanded sense of leadership. And we talk about that in the interview here. Anyway, I was very, um, really enthusiastic about talking to Greg. As I say here, the, um, the connection was made through the pianist on this podcast, Aaron Goldberg. Uh, Aaron's a mutual friend of ours, and Aaron recommended that I uh, check out a, an interview that uh, Greg did with an integral thinker named Carter Phipps. And I'll, I'll give a link to that podcast interview, and I'll also include a link in the show notes to Greg's website, and I want to give a call out to his excellent blog called Tune Into Leadership. If you're looking for an integral view, a more integrated, less polarized, definitely less polarized, but a more integral view around topics of race, culture, art, particularly jazz, um, this is a, a wonderful resource and I highly recommend it. So do check that out. The link is in the show notes. And without further ado, I now bring you Greg Thomas. Okay, today I am with Greg Thomas. Greg, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much, Josh. I appreciate you inviting me. Yeah, let me introduce this for a second. So I'm Josh Summers, and you're Greg Thomas. Um, I was introduced to you by a mutual friend of ours, the jazz pianist Aaron Goldberg. And in learning about you a bit, I've discovered you're a writer, a lecturer, a journalist. Um, you are a senior fellow at the Institute for Cultural Evolution. And you're the CEO of your own organization, the Jazz Leadership Project. And it seems like your work covers, you know, or scopes through jazz, race, culture, um, the development or evolution of culture. And, and there's a, a, an aspect to it that involves integral theory. Does that sound like a, a broad uh, a, a capturing of, of, of your, of your uh, work? It's a very good capturing, and I appreciate you taking the time to put all those pieces together. And something tells me that you were able to do that because you've got those pieces within your own self and work. Well, you know, um, so I, I have some of the pieces. I don't think they're as nearly as uh, developed and as nuanced as, as the way you put them together. But um, I, I could resonate with what I heard in the, in a, in the interview that, I, that Aaron sent to me. And I knew in, in listening to you, I wanted to have a conversation with you. Um, and just to frame the, bro the broad scope of what we might be discussing is, um, I, I kind of want to hear from you and ask you about how you see the landscape of kind of the current discourse on race, particularly in the United States, um, and get you into critiquing I think you have a unique critique of that, that landscape at the moment with uh, your own historical and experiential background. Um, and, 
And then something that I've been interested in in a while now, just thinking back through how the art form of jazz, how jazz itself kind of contains a model for um, cultural evolution itself, how, the, how, the, how, how jazz itself is an evolutionary art form and, um, and what that might shed light on in terms of kind of our national or, or cultural discourse on, on race. Sound about right? Sounds good. Let's go. Okay. So, so your background, how did you, what, what's like the genesis and the evolution of your own work? How did you come to kind of put all of those topics into your wheelhouse? Well, let's see. I'm going to try to bullet point this because we've got a lot to cover. So I am a writer uh, and journalist and, and broadcast journalist. So in the mid nineties, um, my first gig as a journalist was with the City Sun, the now defunct newspaper in, uh, in Brooklyn that came out. It was a great competition for of a long running black American newspaper, the Amsterdam News, which is still around. Uh, but the City Sun was based in Brooklyn and it was, uh, bit more modern and cutting edge and they covered well everything from politics to culture and so that was kind of my initiation into being a professional writer and from there I went on to write for the Village Voice and any number of publications including from 2011 to 2013 being the jazz columnist for the New York Daily News. That's that's on the writing side and I have my own blog now that I co-lead and co-write with uh, or on tuneintoleadership.com um, that my partner in, and wife and my partner in life and, and business, Jewel Kinch Thomas, she co-writes on that and we co-run and co-lead the Jazz Leadership Project, which you also mentioned I'm currently the CEO of. And, that, and the Jazz Leadership Project is, my, my, my sense of it is that you're applying jazz capacities to organizational leadership, individual development. Is that sound it's, right? It's, it's both, that's good. It's both individual development and team development, mm -hmm. okay? So we view as in jazz, each person on their instrument is a leader in their own right, in his or her own right. So the drummer, they've got certain roles and responsibilities and they gotta hold that down. Same thing for the bassist and pianist or guitarist, and of course, what's called the lead instrument, which often is a saxophonist or, or trumpeter. So in the same thing in organizations, of course you have different titles, but I believe in what Robin Sharma says, you can lead even without a title. So what we focus on is applying um, jazz principles and practices, that model, that praxis theory into action, to developing leaders, teams, and organizations. So that that would be a fuller, I think, description. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great. Well, from from that background, um, and and again, what I've what I've gleaned from your work so far is that I think you do have a, a unique voice, or one of the unique voices on on sort of discussing and speaking to the current discourse on race um, and is to, to sort of tee you up here. If you were to imagine that I had been on a meditation retreat for the last 20 years, <laughs> I grew up in the United States as a, you know, a, a middle-class white, white kid. And I went away for a, a silent meditation retreat in somewhere in, in the depths of Asia for 20 years. And I came back and I was trying to make sense of the current landscape of, of racial discourse. How, how would you help orient me to kind of the main the main themes, the main players, and 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 um, and then we can go from there. Wow. Okay. I like that framing. Interesting. <clears throat> okay. So when you went away on your meditation retreat, it was around 2002, which means that we were not too long after September 11th. 2001. By the way, I just should say, I didn't go on a meditation retreat that long. I just know. I, I, oh, okay, okay, okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm, taking, sure. I'm taking your hypothetical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Just making sure that everyone knows that that's the case. No, okay, no, we're good. Okay. So 
but I, I was just taking your, your, your time frame. Yeah. So, you know, you have um, a geopolitical conflict on a very large scale, which I think is appropriate for today because September 11, 2001, where of course, um, terrorists attacked uh, the towers of the World Trade Center. I was actually in New York on that day having a meeting at the Harvard Club in Midtown mm -hmm. Manhattan with a gentleman who was the um, chairman of the board of a, of a nonprofit organization. He was a Harvard Business School graduate. So I say that that's comparable to today because not because the United States has been directly attacked, but because we're in the midst of the geopolitical reverberations from uh, Putin's uh, unjust attack on Ukraine. So that's kind of the, the framing geopolitically. But in terms of the United States, I think we could say that what you came back into was a hyper-polarized situation in which race is just one of many things that are causing the, that's the basis for polarization. Okay, so I do. It's always important for me, at least, to give a context. Um, yeah. So we have hyperpolarization driven by everything from the mainstream media um, becoming so commercialized and divided, particularly cable TV, into ideological camps. Um, you have social social media and the advent of the big technology platforms that are capturing information, selling that information to others, creating big data to uh, understand the psychology of, of human beings and groups and individually, and to target them and, to, and also to have these algorithmic incentives for conflict to drive clicks, to drive activity, which increases the polarization. So mm -hmm. that's those are two aspects of it. There are many aspects of it, but there seems to be in the political realm, um, the way that uh, the two parties have been structured with gerrymandering. Um, and this is both sides, both Democrats and Republicans have done gerrymandering so that there's less and less um, middle ground and less and less swing areas and there's swing states of course but all of this adds to a hyper polarization okay mm -hmm. so race fits into that hyper polarization by way of today the let's say when you went on your meditation retreat I'm using your framework yeah, yeah. I would a couple of years before then I was in graduate school at NYU doing a doctoral program in American studies. And during that time, I had a deep immersion in postmodernism, post-structuralist <laughs> theory. Um, and as an aspect of that, critical race theory, which is an offshoot of critical legal studies and critical theory was a part of that. So, Back then, it was it looked at, you know, it's a critical form of analysis that looks at power relations and how it impacts, quote unquote, marginalized groups, such as people of color, women, etc. Today, you find that on the left, the post-progressive left, those ideas have infused groups of people, young people, relative to me, I'm only 60, mm -hmm. who are now in institutions, you know, journalistic institutions, the, the, the academy, corporations, a HR departments, and they are using some of those concepts regarding power to not only analyze, but to actually critique and take power themselves. Mm. That's on the left. And see many of those people who uh, critique that, and I also critique it, 
I don't find that they spend a lot of time critiquing the other side. And I, I consider myself a radical moderate, okay? Um, so I look at both sides and, and frankly, as a black American, I, I, I've studied American history, world history and, and black American history, life and culture for decades now. So I don't feel I can afford to, to be myopic and just view the threats from the left. Mm -hmm. There's threats on the right also. And those threats manifest as a, a kind of a populist authoritarianism. This is globally, but this is also in the United States um, in which certain groups of people are using ideas that some of which are racialist, some are racist, uh, white nationalist. I mean, these all fit together. And, but I'm looking at the phenomenon of the support of authoritarian and even totalitarian uh, 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 individuals and movements. And it's not about really a democratic, tolerant, liberal, classically liberal orientation. So it's, it's very polarized, but my intervention is, is frankly less to over-focus on an analysis of the polarization. I'm trying to bring some clarity to the confusion around race, racialization and racism. There's a direct link between race as an idea, a concept, which came online um, in the late 1600s, primarily in Virginia, um, and developed over the course of, of history as a way to justify uh, the oppression and domination of groups of people, primarily Afri people of, of African descent. And so we're talking about my own ethnic and cultural tribe of Black Americans primarily. And then you come up to historically 1700s, the founding of the nation, and you have this real powerful um, contradiction. A contradiction of a nation built on certain principles of freedom and liberty and the pursuit of happiness um, for all citizens. But you have the, the contradiction of enslavement and the system of slavery, a global transatlantic system of slavery that directly contradicted those very principles. You go up to the Civil, the civil uh, War, which was largely based around that conflict between the North and the South over expanding slavery to the West and the Midwest and other areas. That's one of the main reasons for that conflict. After that conflict, you have a period called the Reconstruction, 1865 to 1877. <laughs> And it was a powerful period in which there was a, sh a brief shining moment of an attempt to actually try to live up to the principles found in our founding documents, uh, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights. I include Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and Second Inaugural Address in, in those what I call vis-a-vis -vis Ralph Ellison, the sacred documents of, of the United States of America. But then in 1877, you had the betrayal of the Re Reconstruction. And I won't go into all those details, we have so much else to discuss, but let's just yeah. say that after the betrayal of the Reconstruction, which the scholar Rayford Logan called for Black Americans, the nadir, the low point, uh, then you have a hundred years or so of Jim Crow um, until the mid 60s when you had the civil rights revolution, 
um, Dr. Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Revolution uh, using the strategy of nonviolent, um, the nonviolent movement um, and nonviolence in order to uh, not play into the very violence that had been perpetrated on people of color, particularly Black Americans <clears throat> and others, though. Okay, it's not just, yeah. you know, um, you can look at Asian American history, you can look at um, various immigrant groups, you know, called white ethnics and their particular history, you know. So uh, I don't want to make it seem like it was just us. Um, but anyway, yeah. It, it, so maybe in the, the hyperpolarization. Uh, thank you for that 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 broad sweep of of the historical context. But with the hyperpolarization today, you have on one side, on the far left, maybe you have the the postmodern critique of power and 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 kind of looking at structural forms of power that persist and and how to how to dissemble that. Um, and then on on the far right, you have the rise of authoritarian nationalism and and white nationalism. Um, there's but there's also sort of a, a a middle ground critique of the left or from more of kind of a liberal or classical liberal perspective. No doubt, and that's the that's one of the things I'm so glad you mentioned that um, the organization Fair, the uh, Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, and the Institute for Liberal Values, and others. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I wonder about. I say, you have the formation of modernist liberal people who are in organizations who have directly confronted the illiberal threat on the left. My question is, where are the organizations that are commenting and against the threat on the right. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying that I'm much more aware of those organizations, those groups, those scholars who really point out the threat of the illiberal left, but there is an illiberal right. And okay. if we're gonna be truly integral, I think, if we're gonna mm -hmm. be truly um, oriented towards not only common ground, but a higher ground, I think we need to be looking and critiquing both sides. Like I told you, I can't afford to just look one way because if I feel that if I'm looking just one way, a hammer could be coming from the other direction. And I, I don't want that to happen. But I wanted to basically also just clarify in a little more detail, something I said at the beginning of my historical peroration, I hadn't planned to do that, but race, racialization, racism there is a strong connection between the very concept of race, which I gave, you know, mm -hmm. beginning of how that developed and racialization. Racialization is the process through race, through which race as a category of distinction uh, becomes socialized in language and systems. So according to a scholar who- um, Can I add, question you on that would you include consciousness to that so so the racialized system and consciousness you know people people born within these systems that that because i've heard some discussion around racialized consciousness and as as, as one of the components and just want to see what no, you thought I, of that I, no i appreciate that i would say yes because there is what's called a racial worldview. So if you look at the world through the lens of race, and then you end up being beholden to that worldview, a worldview is gonna influence the way you see reality. Hmm. So, so yes, that definitely impacts on both consciousness and culture, for sure, yeah. okay? So, but I wanna give this process, again, because I think we have to tease these things apart. There's such a confusion between race and culture, race and ethnicity, race and ancestry, race and nationality. I mean, it's just confusion. So I like to separate those things so we can look at them. And one key dimension that many are not aware of is the very process of racialization in which there's five steps, according to uh, Carlos Hoyt Jr., uh, who wrote a book called 
the arc of a bad idea, understanding and transcending race, which has been very influential on me. He says, there are five steps to racialization. First step is you select certain human characteristics as meaningful signs of racial difference, skin color, hair texture, um, cranial, facial features, and so on. Then you sort people into races based on, based on variations in those characteristics. So you got light to dark skin, straight to coiled hair, uh, thin and narrow lips versus full lips and broad nose, you know, that type of thing, right? Then you attribute personality traits, behavior, and other characteristics to people classified as members of those particular races. Then, and this is the fourth step, you essentialize. This is the racial essentialism. You essentialize those purported racial differences as natural, biological, immutable, hereditary. And then there's action and behavior based on those purported racial differences that justify unequal treatment. It's really important to understand, I think, that process because it becomes a feedback loop. The concept of race, racialization as a process, which then becomes racism, which reinforces the idea of race. And, and you see how that works? Oh, yeah. So, so to me, I, one of the things I'm trying to do when I, and we'll talk about this, you know, to promote and to um, explain the idea of cultural intelligence, which is the foundation of cultural wisdom, as you heard me say in that interview with Carter Phipps, um, is a foundation for us being able to free ourselves from that vicious cycle that keeps repeating, whether it was the 20 years ago before that retreat, whether it was a hundred years before then or right now, that is the process at play. And when we can take it from being subject to it, being subject to a racial worldview, to looking at it as an object and being able to then see how it works and work to not racialize ourselves or others, now we're getting to where we can start to actually um, get off that karmic wheel. Yeah, and, and exactly getting off that karmic wheel without reinforcing the karmic wheel. And, and, and that, that seems to be a, a question in my mind around the current discourse, well, mostly more on the, the discourse on the left or in terms of its critique of power. Sure. And I think others have made this, made, made this critique is that it, it in some ways reinforces racial categorizations. It to definitely does. Absolutely. That's one of my biggest critiques of it. I'm like, you, and it's something, isn't it ironic that you have some of those same people that, that can find a way to critique the very idea of gender, but not critique the very concept of race. When gender, of course, gender is, is the cultural aspect of sexual differences, you know, male, female. Um, and that therefore is learned. You learn certain things about gender but gender is a biological reality. Race isn't a biological reality, but they won't take that on. So that's one of my critiques of it. And it's certainly one of my critiques of, you know, uh, the right, even the middle. I mean, that's the radical side of radical moderate. In my article, why I am a radical moderate, I talked about being a moderate, the golden mean, you know, the middle path, um, and also being a moderate from the point of view of moderating these various discourses and these various distinctions to try to find a third way, a middle path. But I didn't talk about the radical. That's the radical side. I am an anti-race, anti-racist. I'm against racism by being against the very concept of race and the very process and system of racialization. 
And th that's a lot of nuance that I'd like to, to, to open up now. Um, because, you know, when I came back from that 20 year retreat, <laughs> Um, and I started hearing about the the, the anti-racist discourse. Um, th there were parts that, I, like like you, I probably could see parts of it that I thought had real strength and and critical power to them. And and yet, something also in me wasn't feeling quite right, <clears throat> based on my own kind of academic experience with postmodernism as an undergraduate. And um, and and started starting to see the kind of the performative contradictions within some of that that critique. Um, so, but, but but as a just to be blunt, you know, as a, as a as a as a white middle class guy, it 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 feels fraught in terms of trying to bring critique to that position on, on the left, um, let alone on the right, um, and I. I feel like there's a lot of people in my camp that kind of feel a bit, I don't know what, it, it's not that we feel coward, but there's a way that we, we feel there's a fear to speak uh, about the, the narrative of anti-racism without, without being slapped and, 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 and performatively charged with being racist. And with being canceled. Right. <laughs> because that's real. I mean, it, Man, since after a George the George Floyd murder, <clears throat> um, and the big global movements um, under somewhat the banner or largely the banner of Black Lives Matter. Oh my goodness! I heard from people who I know in the academy <clears throat> who said the same thing you said. They're mm -hmm. people who are afraid to question, to inquire, to explore to critique for those very reasons. Now, I would say that you as a racialized white middle-class person, mm -hmm. a white identified person, a nominally white person, these are, these are certain micro distinctions and micro habits to call into question the very notion of race and self-racialization. Now, if you want to call yourself that, I would say self-racialized as white. And that's that's your that's your option. That's your that's your choice. But you know, but but the thing is this, it is really important, I think, for people such as myself that study this, that understands it and can bring some nuance, because my goodness, the, the media is not about nuance right. and subtlety. It's not about that. Um, so but it but when you have issues like this, you need nuance because it's complex. So you need nuance and even sophistication in order to parse the different aspects of it to, to be able to look out and to be able to hone in and to be able to not get caught up in that same cycle I talked about. So I, I would say this, it just so happens that last night was the last class, the last session of a six month course that I co-taught along with, with my partner, Jewel, and with a, a dear friend and colleague, Amiel Handelsman, who um, we, we, after the George Floyd murder, we did several uh, programs where we dealt with, we dealt with that, we dealt with January 6th, and we ended up deciding to create a course called Stepping Up, Wrestling with America's Past, reimagining his future, healing together. And in this course, we had mostly white identified individuals who were in the very place with the very same concerns you have. And we took them through a process. It was actually based on the hero's journey of them answering the call, them facing the dragon, so to speak. Mm -hmm them dealing through antagonistic cooperation, which is one of the, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the four principles of the Jazz Leadership Project, which is based in and on the hero's journey. And then gaining deeper insights and perspectives, gaining certain habits of conversation 
and certain ways to deal with the situation where you don't get thrown off so easily because you have a grounding in some of the things we've been talking about and more. And you look at, for example, Black Americans, not only as victims of American history, but as contributors to American culture, as assets to American culture, and not just people who have deficits, then you you can start to change your orientation. And then you get introduced, we introduce them to certain thinkers and writers that uh, you don't usually hear about in these contexts. Uh, you hear about, you know, Glenn Lowry, John McWhorter, Coleman Hughes, for example, on the side of you know, critiquing, um, you know, what John McWhorter calls woke racism, right? Uh, and you, of course, you, you hear about Ibram X. Kendi, Robin DiAngelo, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, okay? They are different. Each one of them is different, but you hear, so these are, these are aspects, but you don't hear about Ralph Ellison, the author of the 1953 National Book Award winning novel, a classic, Invisible Man, and the author of um, some of the best and most eloquent essays of the 20th century. So much so that Professor and Dr. Danielle Allen at Harvard calls Ralph Ellison one of the greatest democratic theorists of the 20th century. You don't hear about Albert Murray, who is one of my mentors, um, who talks about the blues idiom and omni-American uh, identity, and talks about many aspects dealing with blues and jazz that provide a perspective on American history and life, Black American history and culture, and Western culture overall in such a way as to, again, broaden, deepen, widen the way you see these issues and to then settle your nervous system so that you can then for yourself engage in the way you see and think about these things and engage in conversation with others about these topics without being thrown off center because you're afraid of saying the wrong thing. We created a safe space for that. So I, I definitely understand where you're coming from. And what you all, what you're, what you're supporting and, and, and facilitating in that safe space is that's the, 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 the environment in which the jazz artist plays. Absolutely. Right? That is so true. Now, when you say that, why do you say that and what, you, what do you mean? I mean it in the sense that uh, the, there's a, a centered poise of presence that's in context or, or in contact. That's the better way of saying it. It's in contact with the context of the musical landscape that they're in. Where and I'm, I'm going to quote my our friend Aaron Goldberg when I interviewed him. I said, "What's it like playing?" He says, "When I play, I am responding. Everything I play is a response to everything else I've already played, and what everybody else is playing simultaneously." And so there's a there's a there's a sign. I mean, and this is where I, I kind of want to explore with you in, in that there's something about jazz cognition and or the consciousness required to play jazz well. That to me, uh, see, I would see what you think on this, but to me, jazz is the most complicated, sophisticated language that humans have ever created. And there's a that's, that's music to my ears, man. That's so that's so true. I would say complex over complicated. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, no question, you find when you have various movements the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, uh, when you have these different um, levels and stages of consciousness and culture that are mapped in different ways, you know, there's indigenous, uh, traditional, modern, postmodern, and beyond. That's one, there are others. You find that the arts and artists always kind of download that before it becomes a part of the mainstream. Mm -hmm. 
It's like they, they innovate this into being. And then there are early adopters who, who sense it, who see it, and then it becomes a part of the mainstream. So definitely jazz, man. <clears throat> if you talk about jazz, you're talking about an art form and cultural technology. You're talking about a form and technology that is grounded in the blues and the blues idiom. So you could say that one way of looking at culture and jazz fits into this is to say, and this is Albert Murray, that you have folk art, popular art and fine art, okay? So the blues is like folk art. I mean, you're talking about a basic form, you know, there are variations, but the 12 bar blues form is a basic form. You have a pop, you have a pop dimension where a lot of people, you know, embrace a form. I mean, you have popular music, of course. Jazz itself was the popular music of the nation in the 1930s. Then you have fine art. Fine art is the dimension where masters, grandmasters, and masterpieces live. Okay. So all of those are valid in their own domains. But jazz at its highest is so powerful because I see it embracing everything from indigenous, traditional, modern, postmodern energies and perspectives in sound, but even beyond. And I, I actually, on um, a show called The Daily Evolver with Jeff Salzman several years ago, went through jazz history as a developmental process in which, and I'm not gonna go through that. I mean, you can kind of go decade by decade from New Orleans, collective improvisation in the teens, you know, to the, the art of the individual soloist coming to fore through Louis Armstrong and Sidney Bechet to the group dynamics of the big bands, to the smaller group than individual, I, I guess I'm doing it anyway, an individual <laughs> virtuosity of bebop, and then a flowering of these different forms such as <clears throat> cool jazz, hard bop, and so-called free jazz. I say so-called because some of the people who play like Ornette Coleman, uh, um, the AACM, um, they didn't necessarily call it that, of course, Ornette Coleman's recording free jazz was one of the reasons it was called that, but I call that postmodern jazz, a critique of what was called modern jazz, which is bebop. Okay. And then when we get to Wynton Marsalis, Wynton Marsalis to me is an integral synthesis. Donald Harrison is along, and they're both from New Orleans, the birthplace of jazz. Mm -hmm where you take what came before and you embrace aspects of it as opposed to, I'm gonna do this because I'm against a particular style and I don't like that. No, let's embrace it all, the best of it all and keep it moving and reflect the best of it all. That's in jazz and it's, and it's in bit, but you know, if you're not into the music, you don't know the history and the culture, it's not that easy to see it, but I've been trying to bring that perspective into certain circles, integral circles in particular, because it's so true. And because you studied integral theory and because you are former jazz musicians, you can see those connections too. Somewhat. And, and you know, as you're talking there, I think you, did I hear correctly at one point, you got to work or play with Clark Terry, the jazz trumpet player? Oh my goodness. The great, late, great Clark Terry, trumpet, flugelhorn, grandmaster, uh, a, a stylist, an individual stylist and innovator extraordinaire. It was in college. It was in April of 1984. Um, and I was the first alto saxophonist in the Hamilton College Jazz Band. And Donald Cantwell, who was the band director, he made arrangements for Clark Terry to come and play with the band and we played his charts. So I had the opportunity to meet Mr. Terry 
I, I, whether it was speakers on campus at Hamilton, <clears throat> where I attended from 81 to 85, or it was musicians, I always did my woodshedding, my, my study of them. And then, I, I mean, I was like, oh my God, this guy was playing with Duke Ellington, Count Basie in the 50s, 35 years before. And then, yeah. you know, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be playing with this guy. And I got a chance to play Ellington Squeeze Me, but please don't tease me with Clark Terry, man. And oh my God, it was, it was, it was incredible. We were in the college chapel and do, 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 And then to hear him a couple of feet from me playing these incredible runs and riffs and stuff, it transformed the way I heard music. It transformed my conception of sound. From that moment, I was able to project my personality. I look at that moment as something that helped me transition from being a teenager to a man. So it was profound for me. That yeah. The, when I was learning, there was a quote attributed to him, I think, on the, the jazz learning process where he says, you, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but you imitate the masters, you assimilate, and then you innovate upon it, right? Boom, there you go. <laughs> and that is a developmental process. Right. <clears throat> you could look at the old apprentice, journeyman, master craftsman model, beginner, intermediate, advanced. Absolutely, that is a wonderful uh, way of looking at not only playing jazz, but developing skills in any area. That's why that yeah. wisdom, that wisdom is found in and through the music and, in, and from the greats of the music. So are there, are there capacities in the jazz learning process that could be applied to normal or everyday individuals? Um, I'm trying to figure out how to frame this question. The, the, the cultural polarization right now is it feels really entrenched, stuck. It feels like it's obstructing a kind of cultural evolution to mm. to to towards greater healing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there the the kinds of psychological capacities or abilities that jazz engenders mm -hmm. would 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 uh, be be well served in the population at large. <laughs> you know, if if more people. Time. You know, yeah. and and yeah, I mean, let's look, let's take a look at this. Okay, so if you look at the, if you talk about the blues, the blues, not just as a musical form, what it represents culturally and psychologically, the blues is a way of acknowledging the downsides of life, acknowledging the tragic dimensions of life, acknowledging all that's messed up about human existence. And yet, instead of wallowing in victimization, the blues says, we're gonna write about this. We're going to sing about this. And in the very process of singing and expressing in a communal context of other people who have experienced the same thing, and I'm not just talking about black Americans, because everybody has experienced the blues, everybody suffers, you play with it, you acknowledge it, you assimilate it, you metabolize it, and then you transmute that into a post-tragic joy. Yes, it is a model for that very process, even though people are not aware of it from that perspective, but yes, it is just that. I mean, we've got so much trauma that people have experienced, intergenerational trauma, and it impacts folks individually. Could you just, could you just open that idea up for a moment? I, I'm not sure many many people are familiar with that. I mean, I, I've heard about it a lot, but I just, I think for, for anybody that doesn't know it about, what, what does intergenerational trauma mean? 
this is trauma that's passed on from generation to generation. So if, if my grandparents have experienced trauma, that gets transmitted to my parents and then to me and such. Um, at, at some point, I, I, I actually didn't believe that that was true. I mean, I think it, I, I'm, I'm confident now based on this, what I've studied that it is true. I think it's also important to emphasize intergenerational resilience. Mm -hmm. See, see, we could talk about inter intergenerational trauma, but there's also intergenerational resilience. That's another side of that coin. You know what I mean? That yeah. And, it, and is the theory that the trauma is transmitted through kind of genetic? In, in part, well, yeah, in part through your genes. And that's important to, to recognize because epigenetics is actually a way of seeing how we, through our own efforts to incorporate new habits, new perspectives, different grooves in our brain can actually impact upon that intergenerational trauma and the mm -hmm. genetics. We are not fixed. We can heal and change and grow and advance. So yes, definitely. Right, and, and um, my sense of the, I mean, it, if this is widespread, trauma is widespread, as you said, you know, it's sort of the, the, the yeah. in what we say in Buddhism, it's the, the primary dukkha of life. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's the tragic orientation in a spiritual sense that, that, that there is the, the brutal, there is that which is unbearable to, to, to be with. Um, but through, at least in, in like a kind of a contemplative spiritual sense, through opening to it, there's a transformation of the the relationship to it, the understanding of it, the the level of identity within it, um, that 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 feels healing and and life affirming, and and to me, you know, what you just said about the blues seems to just just to to, to encapsulate all of that in in this art form, um, but with the pervasiveness of trauma, um, I mean, one idea that I've been thinking through is that to get to have people in a position, have any person in, the, in a position to, to have enough inner poise to be centered within themselves and incapable of engaging in productive, uh, forward-moving dialogue. And generative dialogue. Generative, yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Generative dialogue, right. Um, it, it, would you agree that it, or do you think that, that, that healing one's inner trauma or own trauma is a prerequisite for that ability or for that development? I think, I think it is. I think that, you know, we have to be playing on all cylinders because I think the existential threats that we face not only in this country, but as a humanity are, are real and that the time is relatively short. So we, we will need to work on healing our individual trauma, our um, group traumas, various groups, and even a wider range of trauma. You know, you, you have uh, Thomas uh, Hubble or Hubel who talks about like collective trauma. So we have to be working on all those things simultaneously. Uh, but I would say that the individual, for you to get your shit together, for you to not be triggered and to, remember how you said, Aaron says, he responds to what he played and what others are playing. He didn't say react and neither did you. When you're triggered, you react. And it's something that, you know, takes you back to or reminds you or is associated with some pain and unresolved uh, development from one's past. And then that ends up developing into various sub-personalities and, and character styles that, you know, are not always serving us. And, and, and that, at least in my own personal experience, are inimical, those, those personality styles or those 
uh, un unresolved wounds are inimical to being able to hear clearly or see or perceive clearly what another person is or, or dynamic is trying to offer. Absolutely. So you, then you're not able to exercise what we in the Jazz Leadership Project call big ears, deep listening, active listening, where you're fully present, empathetic listening, where you are listening from the heart, and soulful listening. That's a generative dynamic of co-creation with others. So yeah, it's, it gets in the way of all of that. So working, acknowledging and working on trauma and healing and reintegrating is so important for us to be able to move beyond so many of the conflicts um, and battles that we have within and that we see expressed in society, all the polarization. Yeah. Do you, what's your feeling? This may seem like a, a question coming out of a different angle, but um, what's your feeling about the the vitality of jazz, the life of jazz now? And, and that that question is coming from a jazz fan who um, feels like my culture doesn't uh, doesn't realize and appreciate the the genius and the uh, the the really the incredible. Uh, tradition that is right at the heart of of this culture i mean this is this is like a this is a contribution to world world culture and and it's just i don't feel like it's ever received its due due accolades i i i think i think you're right i think it's ironic that um jazz is seems to have been more readily acknowledged as a great art form in places like Europe and Japan than here. I think some of it has to do with the dynamic we're talking about of race, racialization and racism. I mean, it's cognitive dissonance. If you've got these people who have been classified um, as less than, as all of the different stereotypes and bullshit that they've laid on my ancestors, my cultural and ethnic ancestors, which go beyond, ultimately my ancestors go beyond my cultural and ethnic tribe, but let's just stick there for a second. How is it that these people have created this amazing art form? How have they been able to create a popular culture, jazz and other forms that have totally been embraced by the world. How is it possible when they're less than? It's too much cognitive distance. And I don't think that Americans overall um, have gotten to what Robert Keegan calls the self-authoring the self stage of, of development, of adult development, where they're able to separate themselves from what he calls the socialized mind, which is more conformist, which is more, I take what's given to me. Oh, well, this is the way it is. Self-authoring mind says, hmm, is that true? Hmm. Is that the best for me? Do I really believe that? And to do the work that's necessary to define for oneself where you're coming from, what you believe, what are your values? What meanings do you derive from the culture around you? What do you agree with? What do you disagree with? All of those things happen at that uh, more, uh, that development of, of the self-authoring stage that he talks about. And um, when we, if we can have more people there, then we can have more people that would embrace some of the insights that we're talking about as far as these music and this music and not be blinded by the decoy of what uh, of race, which is a phrase of my late friend Stanley Crouch, the decoy of race, the mm -hmm. illusion that comes from racialization and the damage that's been done through racism. Do you have any, I know we're getting close to the hour, but do you have any final words on what can help more people move into that self-authoring stage you were just describing? 
Good question. I think we've been talking about it. I think that um, people need to work on themselves. They need to uh, look at themselves, not only in terms of categories, but in terms of what Robert Gilman calls territories. A territory um, is a way of looking at yourself and the various parts of yourself internally. Um, and to be able to look at others in terms of the deeper dimensions of themselves. Um, let me give you an example. So we mentioned subpersonalities and character styles. Those are inner dimensions of the territory of the human being that if you deal with those things and you look at healing your trauma, you become more balanced. You're more able to, as opposed to being caught in your limbic system or your amygdala and therefore dealing with the reactions of flight, fight, fear, or fawning. Or freeze. Or freeze, that absolutely. I think I mentioned one. Thank you for adding that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're able to be in what Robert Gilman calls your optimal zone, that center, that poise, and then if you're able to do that, you're able to think, feel, and act and behave from a uh, more centered place of your best self and allows you to deal with other people from that place. And the more of us who are able to do that, the more of us who are able to interact with one another from our best selves as opposed to our triggered selves, our creative selves, as opposed to our conformist selves, the faster we'll be able to get to that self-authoring stage. Yeah, and if I just add a coda on that, um, I, I've been having an ongoing series of conversations with Robert Wright. You know, one of his uh, things that he sermonizes about is that he feels that if, if more people were exercising cognitive empathy, the ability to see from another person's perspective or another group's perspective, that there would be fewer conflicts, fewer escalations of conflicts in the world. Um, and he feels that mindfulness practice, meditation of, of mindfulness practice is one way of developing cognitive empathy. But I think what you're adding here, and, and this is kind of what I wanted, why I wanted to bring you into the conversation, is that you're adding the kind of different levels of the inner work that allow for cognitive empathy to flower and that to the, and and i've been looking at this in my own life and interrogating my own my own inner self but to the degree that there is a triggered part like there's an old wound that that's that's that's, that's alive it 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 just is near impossible to to fully be poised enough to hear clearly what you know as i was saying what another person um, might be trying to share and, um, and so there is this really direct line between the inner work that can seem kind of solipsistic or selfish or self-absorbed, self but there's a direct line between the inner work and the potential for an evolving um, collective or an evolving collective consciousness. And I, I think the way you've been speaking about how, how blues is a kind of the, 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 in some ways the ultimate model for that process um, I, I think is just really, really poignant and, and important to, to bring forward. I'll end with this. Culture, the many definitions of culture, um, culture is a complex adaptive system. There's, there's just so many from various angles, but from one particular angle, I would say that culture is the, is the link between our biological heritage and our social heritage. We have that a base layer, biology, but um, there's a great anthropologist, Paul Bohannon, in a book that I read, uh, first read and read a number of times since then uh, in the late 90s called How Culture Works. And one of the way he, way he describes culture is as a prosthetic. It's like we have these biological capacities. Culture adds on to those capacities to extend our human reach. So then through writing, through language, through traditions, 
we have certain meanings and values that derive from those things, right? And so those meanings and values are what one way of looking at it is called the inner dimension of culture, mentifacts. But then the outward expression are artifacts. Right? What was the what was the inner expression? Mentifacts. <laughs> the, like a, the mental, you're talking about the cognitive entropy, the mental mentifacts. These are, that's an anthropological term. But you know, artifacts are the actual physical objects that you can see, right? Or or the forms that you can see, but the mental. I mean, the aspect of culture that's about shared beliefs and values and and uh, and meaning. You know, I mean, wasn't it um, wasn't it the great uh, psychologist um, Victor Frankl mm. uh, who says that even in the midst of horrific experiences like what he experienced in the Nazi camps. If you can find meaning in your experience, it allows you to better go through it. So these things are essential. The cultural dimension is so important, so central um, that these are aspects of what I call, as you know, cultural intelligence for the sake of cultural wisdom to enhance cultural evolution. Amen. Well, I thank you so much, Greg, for your time. I, I really appreciate your the generosity of your spirit and 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 speaking to me about about these these themes. I I, I um, want to refer anyone that's interested to, to your work. What's your website again? I have two. So the business website is jazzleadershipproject.com. If you happen to have an organization. Uh, that needs leadership training and team development. But our blog, our, our public content is tuneintoleadership.com. And I just subscribed to that about two days ago and uh, I've really been enjoying what you're producing there. So I highly recommend the blog. Um, you're on Twitter as? At, oh, I just looked at, you up. I forget what, I it, think, what your handle I think was. It's, it, I think is it Ed Greg Thomas 22, I think. Um, oh, goodness. I mean, I, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I, I am not on as much as maybe I should be. No, that's a good thing. That's a good yeah, thing. I mean, because see, I know, I, I know the rabbit hole that <laughs> social media represents. So what you can do if there are show notes, Feel free to add my Twitter handle, handle and my Facebook. yeah, and I'll put all that in the and, show notes. And even and even LinkedIn. Yeah. yeah, but definitely definitely the blog. Um, and 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 you know, staying off social media keeps you in the deep. Stay out of the shallows there. <laughs> Hello. All yeah. right. Thank you so but much. Listen. John. Thank you so much, Greg. <laughs>